All right, so this morning we look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we will be in verses 16 to 23. Uh, so we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll be in 16 to 23. I want to read those verses uh, for us this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 reads, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their own I'm sorry, catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, the sermon is entitled The Temple of God. And the wisdom of God, the temple of God and the wisdom of God. And so as we look to the last particular verses that make up the full context for us, we see that Paul began to explain the role uh, that believers play as fellow workers together in building uh, up God's field. And we established the last time that we were looking at this text in the first uh, the first 15 verses prior to this, that the building that. God is concerned with are those who are his elect, the believers, the building are the people. And so God is concerned that the builders build according to the standard that he has set forward. And we established that sand, that standard in this text as the new birth, because it is according to the grace that Paul said he received that we now build the way that God has commanded us to build. And so when we look to this particular text this morning, we're looking at the temple of God as it is defined by Paul and the wisdom of God as he also defines the wisdom. And so in that sense, we also establish that we are still addressing the conflict that Paul is trying to resolve among the Corinthians. And so he uh, this is related to the answer to the divisiveness of the Corinthians and the wisdom of God as he established it, uh, establishes that as the identity of believers. And so he wants to answer the fact that there has been a raging divisiveness that's becoming uh, evident among the Corinthians. And so when Paul launches into this, he's not simply dealing with the generic idea that believers are identified in Christ. That is certainly true. But he aims to explain what it means to be uh, united in Christ and also identified with him. And so when we look to verse uh, 16, he says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, even the way that he frames that question, we recognize that he's trying to correct something. And he's trying to establish the terms upon which the believers function together because the Corinthians were not doing that in the way that God had designed for them to operate together. So he was establishing for them that not simply are they identified in Christ. Yes, that is absolutely the case. 
And so many passages in the New Testament speak to that point, but also that God dwells in them. So he's dealing with the fact that not only are they in Christ, but God is in them. So then it is a matter of how we view one another and how we view ourselves. And I believe that that is in the face of any conflict, in the face of a largely uh, personality cultist uh, approach. Uh, to confessing evangelical Christianity, I believe that that is the matter that we must face this morning. How we view one another and how we view ourselves and where do we get that information from? So the question then is, would we would we elevate one another to worship one another if we see that God resides in each one of us who confesses him? Would we really elevate each other above him if we truly understood that God dwells in us? Would we cause division among one another through jealousy, clamoring, as was the case with the Corinthians, hero worship and self-ambition? Would we cause these things if we ourselves viewed ourselves through the lens of God's dwelling in us? If we understood that God has made us his temple, That is certainly true of the individuals, but it is also true of the collective. It is why the last time we viewed this text, as I've said, we established that we must get our minds away from the physical buildings, the structures and the infrastructures men have created to somehow convince us that those things are endowed with God's spirit simply because they are grand in scale and meet with man's approval. And so when we look to this text, Paul is not talking about physical temple structures, physical programs, Greco-Roman infrastructure. He's talking about something that God has built inside of us and how that then functions among us. That is a description of the church. That is a description of not only fellowship, but how God has built the church upon Christ and the work of being saved by grace through faith in him. It is, as we established last time, the person. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. For we are God's fellow workers. Okay? And then it says, you are God's field. You are God's field. God's building. He's going somewhere here because he's going to establish that We're not interested necessarily of the Old Testament mindset that has been fulfilled that we must synagogue somewhere. But instead, we must fellowship in Christ together and where the believers are and where the evidence, uh, the evidence of his gifts operating among them and all the things that make for the establishment of his church, his way. There you have God's collective temple operating together. The temple as he establishes, are the people. They're the people. And so Paul is moving them away from looking to one another as though they are to be elevated against one another. So it is the person, or they are the people. This is God's work, God's building. And think about that as we said it last time. They labor together, we labor together to build up what God has established, 
We do not construct on a new foundation, but one that's already been established, as Paul says, that being Christ himself. And in building, we build together and build one another up. So this is largely concerned with people. He's dealing with people. It is specifically those in whom God dwells. We are the living temples of God through which his work is done. We are the living temples through which his work is done. So then Paul, living in a time of grand structures and grand false ideologies housed in those structures, saw to it that the Corinthians understood in as much as they confessed Christ that they were the temple of God. They are the temple of God, not the structures, not the infrastructures, not those things which house the false idols who can do nothing for the people. But it was that God dwelled in them. And this is such a key point because you see then how we are now beginning to mount a defense against the conflict that was raging in Corinth. What made them the temple? What made them the temple? Well, verse 16 says it explicitly that the spirit of God dwells in you. The temple of God then resides with those in whom his spirit resides. It is the thing to which the New Testament says Christ in you or John 15 when Jesus says abide in me. He's giving an early glimpse of how the temple, the structures that Israel once stood upon and depended upon, that those were coming down and that what would be built up is the new man in Christ and the new man in Christ having God's spirit in him. Thus is the temple of God. It's the temple of God. So Paul understood, even as these uh, these mounting ideologies and idolatries were surrounding him, he understood that man is the temple. God dwelling in man makes him the temple. And so then to look at one another apart from being not only crafted in his image, but also vessels of the spirit to be used for the purposes of building up one another. That was destruction. Paul was warning the Corinthians, essentially, do not destroy God's temple. Do not destroy God's temple. And so I'm sure you have maybe heard in the past that there have been those who have looked at this passage and have called out the obvious. Many would view this destruction as blatantly immoral sins. And that is certainly one way to view this. But let's not escape our context because everything that is said is said within its context. To destroy the vessel is to be arrogant and to have this lofty attitude toward one another. Because that's how the chapter starts and the chapter continues from that place upon which Paul is defining true wisdom versus the false wisdom. And then prior to that, he's dealing with, as we keep saying over and over again, the conflict. The conflict of raising up factions. And we know that all of this is within our context because as we get to the latter portion of our context, we look at verse 22. In this particular passage here, it says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. He's saying we are fellow workers in this. So you see how everything he says is driving to the point of ending the conflict. And the division. 
So essentially, one could destroy the vessel, the temple, by hero worship. And this is what causes the rise in factions, disunity, and schism. So it's not only Paul who would not tolerate this among the Corinthians, because Paul would not. It's why he wrote the way he wrote. It's why he addressed it very early in the epistle. But it was also God would not tolerate this among them. God himself doesn't tolerate this. It's not just that it bothered Paul. It was that God said, you are destroying my temple because you are exalting one another above the one who made you the temple. And therefore, you are building counter to what God has established. You are building against what he has authorized. It is unsanctioned. And we know from Israel's history that God responds very swiftly to unsanctioned worship. You see it in Leviticus. When the priesthood is rolled out, the Aaronic priesthood is rolled out. You see it during the time of the prophets of Baal. That every time there is this false worship, you see it in the Gospels with Christ, that he he is dethroning false worship that is before him. We will see it in the end times related to those events that take place as spelled out for us in Revelation. But God is always going to judge the destruction of his temple. And he's always going to uh, going to destroy those who worship other gods. So God did not tolerate this. Look at verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, if any man destroys the temple of God, it's very plain here. It says God will destroy him. God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. And that is listen to that. I love I love the way he says it. And that is what you are. So now we know he's not just talking about buildings. He's saying those of you who reside where you are are holy. It's not about where we are. It's about if we're holy while we're there. You must understand that is the temple. The temple is us who are holy. The temple is not where we reside. The temple is God residing in us while we're together in our capacity of fellowship. But God, in the destruction of the temple, earthly vessels inhabited by him. And that doesn't simply mean eliminating each other through violence. But it is to sin against one another in such a way so as to make that which God resides profane. No longer holy. But God promises, as Paul tells us, God promises that the destruction of his temple would be met with swift judgment. The judgment of destruction. Make no mistake to this point. Paul is mentioning this. I want you to think about this. Paul is mentioning this because they were beginning to destroy one another. With the divisions that were entering the Corinthian church. They were beginning to destroy one another. And so Paul says, God is not pleased. God is not pleased. And then you would think that in this capacity to which he's referring, that he would just move on from. It. But then he goes to the arena of deception. Because he says, let no man deceive himself. 
Well, I'll tell you why he says that. Because it is gratifying to exalt people to a place in the flesh above their proper placement in Christ. It is gratifying. And it is often met with earthly reward and earthly benefit. But it is a deception. And I truly believe, and I believe that perhaps you'll find agreement with this statement, that it is the deception that so many face today. I believe that is a great deception. It is to think that they are building something for God, perhaps because it appears to be grand in scale and beautiful to the eye. But we do not walk by sight. We walk by faith. We walk by faith. So then as they build their way for their glory, they are really destroying one another. They're destroying one another. Things aren't as they appear. They're not as they seem. God only places his stamp on approval on the building process that he has commissioned. They are destroying one another. The true temples, if indeed true, that God dwells in them. They are destroying one another. Because God dwells in us by his saving work through Christ. So all things are for him. That's how Paul ends this text. All things are for him. All things are for God. So then it is judgment to take that which is holy and to bring it down to the level of the profane. And once one will face destruction, it is profane to destroy one another through all the things that Paul has said. It is destruction to do so. And if you think about it, if we were to envision scales, you can see the scales are not necessarily heavily tipped to the pagan religions surrounding Corinth to this point. The scales are tipped toward the division that is making its way into the church. That's what Paul is referring to. And he's referring to it because of the factions that are expressly uh, tied to that same kind of sin. He speaks of it. He speaks of the jealousy. He speaks of them tearing one another apart. And so then he says it is judgment. It is judgment that will meet them. So Paul, what he's referring to, he's referred to already in previous verses. It is the people. It is the people. It's not only that Paul had a heart for people, it's that Paul had a heart for the people because they were God's temple. He is concerned with the believers in whom God dwells. You see that he's concerned with the believers in whom God dwells because God has chosen to make them his temple. I love his posture here because you can picture Paul in his former life. As Saul of Tarsus, he would have guarded the temple with a ferocity, I believe. Just like every Jew would have been expected to throughout the history of Israel. But now what Paul is saying is, I defend the temple in the same way. But now I define the temple the way that God would have me define it. That I do not want to see his temple desecrated. I do not want to see his temple destroyed. Well then, Paul, who is the temple? Well, verse 17, his holy people. The temple is holy. 
The people are holy just as he is holy because he abides in them. God has made us holy and he has chosen us as his temple. So then the, the believers are not here in Corinth and before us today to treat one another in profane ways. They're not to do that. Paul is answering for the Corinthians. How might we move away from the factions that we have built? How might we move away from the hero worship that is now making its way in? How do we eliminate the personality cultism that has become a staple in Corinthian fellowship? How do we get rid of those things? Paul here is answering it. He's saying you are holy. You are God's temple. God lives in you. So see each other that way. And when you see each other that way, you will treat one another as though you are purchased and redeemed by Christ. And then your fellowship will cause you to worship him for one another. For the fact that Paul is going to bring up that even the men who are faithful are men whom God has given. And thus we are not to worship the ones whom God has given. His temple is holy. They can't treat one another in profane ways. And it is certainly profane and idolatrous. I know so many like to look at Corinth and talk about the raging immorality. We'll get there and talk about just the, the lavish sins that they committed in Corinth. But Paul goes first to what Peter identifies as judgment begins with the household of God. Paul says, I want to start with the people. I want to start with telling you first, you are holy in the face of an inner division that's taken place within the church. He doesn't first start with an apology to society, although I believe it has its place. He says, I want to talk to you, my fellow brethren, about your place within God's kingdom. And so he begins there. It is profane and idolatrous and wicked to treat one another as though any of us is worthy of worship due God alone. That's what he's after. So then just as I have mentioned deception to you, because deception is a great concern in so many texts throughout the scripture. It's a concern in scripture. Be not deceived. Do not deceive yourselves. Let no man deceive himself. Those kind of phrases are, are over and over and over again said. Scripture is concerned with deception. It is true that Paul is seriously concerned with the Corinthians avoiding deception. But as I said, let's look at verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. It's not just deception. He's concerned with self-deception. Because it takes the self-deception of man's quote-unquote wisdom, not really wisdom, but the self-deception of man's wisdom to elevate one another, one above the other, in this game of devaluing God's glory in us and replacing that with partiality among us. It takes self-deception to do that. You have to really be deceived about Christ's work in us. You have to really be deceived about how God truly wants us to view one another, to begin to exalt one another above each other. 
And then you, as I've said, you devalue God's glory. You begin to lower the the value of what God has established as him being glorious among his believers. So he says, let no man deceive himself. And then he presents a call to wisdom, a call to wisdom. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Now, again, another passage that's often taken and meant to just be a general apologetic against society. And I believe that it can apply that way. But what Paul is really saying here is and the wisdom of this age presents the factions and the jealousies and the ambitions and the clamoring that you would see that would cause division in the church. So he's calling them away from that as well. So far, these Corinthians were not in danger of necessarily being in the world, so to speak. The danger was to bring the world into the church. That was the danger. And so Paul says that's self-deception. That's self-deception. It's why later on he'll tell them, you need to expel the immoral man out of your midst. You don't let the world system continue to have sway nor sin in the life of the Lord's church. You don't continue to let it happen and fester. But Paul did call them to wisdom, the wisdom not of this age, but the wisdom we are told in the New Testament from above. Echoes of James three apply here and so many other passages. That divine wisdom you recall where we are seated with Christ. The same as Colossians, parts of Ephesians mention this divine wisdom. So much of it is laid out for us in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other portions of the Old Testament as well. But this wisdom. And so Paul says, I'm calling you to this divine wisdom because it keeps us from the foolishness of not only self-deception, But the kind of self-deception, if we're specific, that would cause the immature and the unbelieving to exalt one another as gods. Isn't it amazing that today you are told the most mature, the most seasoned are those who are doing the things that Paul says, that's how the world acts. They are called the most mature. And so what Paul is saying is in this particular arena... Overall, certainly, but in this particular arena, because, again, these verses are sandwiched in between the conflict very closely in this particular arena. We must think ourselves fools in this sense, not that we are foolish and not that we have this self-deceived false sense of humility that pretends it's a good thing to be ignorant. That's not what Paul is saying. Instead, we must look at the world's wisdom and see it for what it is. So that we do not exchange the truth for a lie. I'm bringing in the whole catalog of Paul's writings because that's where he's going. He's saying, I want you to consider yourselves fools related to this worldly wisdom. And I want you to then consider that if you do that, that's called humility. You will then be made wise. You will be made wise. Don't consider yourself wise by bringing in the world's methods 
and operations into the life of the church. Consider yourselves fools to that, and then the Lord will grant you true wisdom. And so in that sense, he says, we must we must consider ourselves fools. Paul called the Corinthians to consider themselves fools to the world's wisdom. Well, why? He says it so that they may be granted the wisdom from above and be truly wise. He wanted them to truly be wise, not simply pretending to be wise because they compromise by blending the world's foolishness with divine wisdom. There's so many who are pretending. There's so many pretending to be wise. But Paul is saying, I want you to truly be wise. And how you are truly wise is then you consider that the wisdom of this age is a foolishness before God. Look at verse 19. He says it that way. The wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. God doesn't say, well, you know, some of it works and some of it can apply. and All truth is God's truth. He doesn't say that. He says all foolishness, whether it's called wisdom, is foolishness. The only wisdom is his wisdom. Well, where do I unlock that wisdom? In the word. I find it in the person of Christ. And I find him and his teachings in the word. And that informs my actions, my thoughts, my mouth, my conduct. And therefore, it also informs when I relate to you and you relate to me, the wisdom with which we operate. Because that drives the fellowship is what Paul is saying. It's not wise to exalt one another. It's not wise to be jealous and ambitious toward one another. It's not wise to slander one another. It's not wise to boast in one another. That is the foolishness of this world. The world does those things. The world does those things. And so Paul is going to the particular acts. The particular acts. That people in self-deception commit against one another and counter to God's wisdom. But he didn't want them pretending. They were already guilty of pretending. And we see it in chapter 1. They were guilty of pretending. They were pretenders. How would they avoid this? Again, he tells them. Consider... All of the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. And then he says, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And then he says, and again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Well, now he, he doubles down that the reasonings of them. It's not just they're proclaiming to be wise, but the conclusions they're trying to work out. The plans and schemes that they come up with to try to project their so-called wisdom out before them into the world and to make proselytes of their foolishness. He says their reasonings are foolish, useless. It is the way in which Paul tells them to avoid this. Seeing the world system for what it is, foolishness, it's foolishness. He did not call them to retreat to the hills because they were too overcome to deal with the assaults. Instead, Paul showed that the wisdom of God is greater than the world's wisdom. It will not only stand the test of time, it will stand for all eternity. That is the true test. We talked about that last time. 
Godly wisdom, godly wisdom, is what fortifies the believer against the world's system. Even when the world system begins to infiltrate the church. Godly wisdom is what fortifies. It's what fortifies the believer and the true church. I hope this helps in one area, and I'll tell you what area I hope it helps. I hope it helps you think about when even men go about talking about defending the church. They speak as though they're defending a building, a place, and yet themselves in their minds, their conduct, who they allow to influence them. All of that is counter to the idea that you are God's temple. And so when it comes to defending themselves as looking at themselves as God's temple and defending other believers as looking at them as God's temple, they're out to lunch. They're not there. They're not available. I'm speaking the language of John 10. True shepherds versus hirelings. There are those who are pretending to be wise. And that's what Paul is saying. And in pretending to be wise, he says further, they are laying traps for themselves. Look at this. He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. God doesn't engage in the craftiness, but he catches them in their craftiness. They have engaged in this uh, this foolish craftiness. They are pretending to be wise, and yet they lay traps for themselves. God sees them. God sees them. But he sees them this way. Not as his temple. He sees them as fools. He sees them as fools. Their wisdom is foolish. And those who hold to it are foolish. You see here that there is no blending of the two. And you see it very early on. Paul doesn't allow for it to be something that he didn't define before the Corinthians. They will choose what they will, but it will not be without instruction. It will not be without clarity, divine clarity from the Holy Spirit. There is no blending of the two. There is no modern day sophistication that man thinks he has as he blends the world and the church together. It's very modern sophistication, these trends that men follow, well-researched idioms and ideas and programs. Such men will be caught. Paul teaches they will be caught. They will be arrested by their own craftiness in their own wise scheming. They are cooking up for themselves. It is why he says the reasonings of the wise are are useless. They are cooking up for themselves their own destruction. When they sit around in their meetings and just out of their mouths come everything that is against what God has designed. I'm talking about religious men. They are laying the traps for themselves. They are cooking up destruction. If nothing to say of the world, we know that that's the world's plight. I don't want to diminish that. The world is certainly guilty of that. But Paul is dealing with people who are raising up these factions in the church, in the body of Christ. They will come to an end of what they thought was wisdom. And they will be confronted with the fact 
that their reasonings are useless. Useless. What is this specific foolishness that the wise are cooking up that Paul says it's useless? There's many reasonings that foolish people go through, but Paul is very specific. Well, he identifies it. The specific foolishness that the wise are cooking up, we find in verse 21. So then let no one boast in men. So then let no one. He doesn't say some of you can. He doesn't say there's a year marker that a man reaches and then we can begin to boast in him. He doesn't say there's a certain constituency or geographic location that a man could inhabit and then we boast in him. He doesn't say a man of particular ethnicity can be boasted in. He says let no one boast in men for anything. Let no one boast in men. Well, why? Why can't we boast in men? For all things belong to you. All things belong to you. He's speaking of the collective. All things belong to you. God has built it. We are then not building something new, but building on established foundation. And we all richly enjoy together. God has given his men and women, the believers, all things to richly enjoy. That's that's scripture language and to richly partake of these things with one another. It's why, as the passage we read, typically for our communion, first Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of the desecration of the Lord's table as an unholy thing for that reason also that God has given that for us to richly enjoy together. Yes, there are things that govern why we do what we do, but it is for our enjoyment that we get to take that moment and commemorate the Lord's death and certainly celebrate not only what his death means related to eternal life, but the fact that we will fellowship with him in his kingdom. But Paul is specific. We are given all things to richly enjoy. So then we can't engage in the foolishness of boasting in men. It's foolishness. I know it's not natural to think that way or say that in the larger, grander scale of what is known as professing Christianity today. But it's foolishness because Paul says explicitly, let so then let no one boast in men. He ties it directly to the fact that God is going to destroy those who destroy his temple. And then he ties it directly to the fact that the reasonings of those who are so-called wise yet truly foolish, they're useless. Don't even come to the conclusion that boasting in men is wise. Because the act is not only useless, it's useless to try to arrive there. Paul not only told them to refrain from boasting in men, but he turns the factions that they created on their heads. He flips it upside down on them, so to speak, or I would say right side up because they have flipped it upside down. He shows how it is God who is the source of blessing. God is the source of blessing in this specific way to the men they stole for their factions. And God is the source of blessing to those who have blessed them. Christ is not a faction. He's not a faction. 
For all things belong to you. You know who belongs to you? Paul. All of you. Apollos. All of you. Cephas. All of you. Life itself. Your death putting you in position for eternal life. Things present or things to come. He's talking about eternal, spiritual, divine things. All things belong to you. It's such a simple and sweet solution to the problem. These men that you are pulling for yourselves and gathering for yourselves, they belong to you. Now, I recognize that there are some who may think, okay, we're good. So all we need to do is just recognize that our heroes belong to each other. Well, no, because some of your heroes don't stand for Christ. So you have factions around individuals who aren't even Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. So you need to run from the people who don't belong to Christ and not engage in factions for those who actually belong to Christ. Because so many today have established factions among those who don't even speak for Christ. We haven't even got to the point where they're establishing factions for individuals who represent him faithfully. There's some of that going on, too. But here the issue was is that they were taking Paul, faithful, Apollos, faithful, Peter, faithful, and Christ, the very son of God himself. And they were taking them and saying, we belong to this character that we made of them. But Paul is saying, look at this from the standpoint of eternity. Christ is not a faction. He is God in human flesh. He is the son of God. He is the holy one, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Paul is not a faction leader. He is the apostle sent by God. Apollos is not a faction leader. Peter is not a faction leader. But we with them are all partakers in Christ. And Christ belongs to God. In what sense? Well, in the John chapter three sense. That God has sent and loved his only begotten son. So in that sense, Christ belongs to him. And if God is dwelling in us, then Christ belongs to us all. So then all things now belong to those whom God has granted the blessing to further his true church. Well, then also we are partakers together in the age to come. We can't devalue his glory here because we have an eternity that we're preparing for. We don't have time to worship men because we are trying to get to the point of our glorification where we will be seated around his throne and worshiping him forever and ever and ever. Amen. We don't have time to devalue that. Time is not on our side to strike against God, but time is certainly on our side to bring glory to him forever and ever. That is what Paul is saying. We do not need to raise up factions or cheap thrills. We do not need to raise them up. And we certainly do not need to reserve worship for any man or woman, but God alone, God alone. 
Because he has richly given us all things collectively and individually. The rewards that we spoke of. We will learn next time as we look at this. We will learn next time is that we are from this called not only to cease any worship for one another. So Paul says, do not worship one another. Largely, the next text we'll deal with is, he says, I want you to serve one another. Do not worship one another, but serve one another. Let's pray.